Section 84. How many on the team, exactly? If you want to know what an organization is doing, then just count where the developers are and what they are working on. Me. Much of what hardcore software has been about was what we were building and why. This chapter is about how. Specifically, I wanted to delve into the management structure and what we worked through to restore efficacy and build a new kind of Windows team. Over the next few posts, we will journey through understanding of cultural challenges the team faced, figuring out a plan to lay the foundation to address those, and then putting that plan into action. This first post gets into the core of understanding what precisely the team is building by figuring out how many people work on what projects. That should be simple, no? When you move into a new job, there are a lot of things that need to come first, too many. You want to touch base with the most critical individuals, but you don't want to minimize the importance of those less so. You want to focus on the high priority as areas of work, but it's times like this that the lower priority work hardly needs to be reminded of that fact. You're dying to ask a lot of questions, but people are dying to tell you things. Then there's the political reality that many things pushed to you or arrive in your inbox are often those least needing your attention, but most likely to notice a lack of attention. I had all this to think about while being reminded of Windows Vista every day and needing to let the team in place finish the project without interference, inadvertent or otherwise. It was extremely weird to commit myself to learning about Windows and the Windows team. I had, after all, essentially grown up around it, just not in it. I knew the Windows product and the Windows people. I just had no idea how those people made that product. I knew the organization at a super granular level from Windows 3.x and Windows 95, working on toolbars and AppCompat and the shell from C++ and Office. I knew these things at a strategic and executive level also. I had a high altitude view of the organization and I knew a lot of individuals, but between a few feet off the ground and 50,000 feet above the ground, I had a lot to learn. Little was as it seemed, however, when it came to the details. There's a well-known military principle on knowing the difference between lessons and lessons learned, between reading about something and having learned that same thing through the experience of changing how one operates. Any management book will tell you to know the budget and resources on a team, and that's a good lesson. In the Microsoft culture filled with cookie licking, shiny objects, and side projects, my most important learned lesson is to actively track how many developers there are and what code they're writing. Every time I was uncertain of what a team was actually building or if a project was real, understanding the number of developers assigned to which code was the most valuable information to have and the most critical to keeping a project on track. I learned that with NetDocs, the tablet PC, and so many 1990s internet projects long since past. Everything other than actual working developers is just talk. In the online version, there's an excerpt from a military publication on learned lessons. Therefore, the first thing I chose to do was to get a handle on the comp composition of the team with the help of Kristen Roby Dimlow, Kristen D. from HR. One thing became clear. I was new in a new world and Kristen D, who was previously our finance partner in office, was there to help. She brought with her a refreshing analytical view of the structural challenges I and now we faced. Kristen began immediately trying to collect the data on who was doing what. In Office, headcount, resource allocation, and org structure were readily visible, and for the most part, easy to figure out by looking at the company's online system called HeadTracks. 
Windows was a different apparatus. There was a headcount number, what they were working on, for whom they were working, and even their actual physical location, well, those were all less clear or fuzzy. In keeping with the Windows tradition of reorgs that mostly split the baby, or product organizations that were structured such that accountability and ownership were somewhat muddled, the job I was given was not so much the Windows job, as would most first perceive. This wasn't really a surprise to me. I knew what I was getting into. This was the Windows client team previously described. COSD remained separate as it was already. To Kevin Johnson and Steve Ballmer, accountability was clear, even if the organization structure and people were not. This was typical Microsoft accountability in the 2000s. I was their quote, Windows guy, and decidedly on the hook to figure out what comes next. Kevin had a huge amount to figure out. He was clear just how much he was hoping I could wrap my brain around things with respect to what comes after Vista. Along with the Windows client, there was Internet Explorer and the user-facing side of live services. The split of everything down the middle was alarming when it came to accountability, but just how alarming required more investigation. The live services represented a lot of headcount, but the revenue numbers did not seem so big to me at the time. By Microsoft Online Services standards, there was significant revenue associated with Hotmail and Messenger. Hotmail sold display advertising, perhaps $300 to $400 million a year worth. The ads were intrusive, so-called right rail ads that took up the right side of the screen. The running joke was that the most popular ad was for a toe fungus medicine. The team was working hard to try to sell Hotmail extra storage, upgrading 10 megabytes and later 50 megabytes for $19.95 per year. Google's Gmail had no ads and free, essentially unlimited storage. The unlimited storage was not some gimmick. Google invented a novel, infinite, reliable storage mechanism enabling the capability. MSN Messenger was also selling ads inside their client application, though less than Hotmail. Also intrusive, though the move to mobile phones and the growing competition from Skype were both problems. In other words, the few hundred million dollars in revenue was not remotely sustainable, and at the same time, the products were really struggling. There's a screenshot of MSN Extra Storage advertised in the online version. Almost an afterthought in all of the discussions about me taking this job was the fact that I would also be managing the new homegrown search product, which was recently branded as Live Search. It would not be Bing for another two years. The team was rapidly growing, up to almost 100 engineers, but was still very new and clearly a very distant competitor to Google with over 10,000 employees. The first beta test of Live Search started just weeks before I joined the team. Christopher Payne, email Chris PA, was chartered with leading the team. He was the vice president and team founder and had returned to Microsoft to lead many of the MSN services. In a moment of boldness for a team under a great deal of fiscal pressure, in 2003, he proposed to Bill G a massive effort, an expensive investment, to build out a search product that could compete with Google. This included maps, instant answers, books, and more. At the time, as crazy as it sounded, search across all of MSN was a hodgepodge of business development deals and outsourcing to compete with Google. In his prior time at Microsoft, Christopher, he preferred his full name in spite of the email name, was a product leader on the first versions of the Access Database product in Office and some of the early MSN properties. 
He later went on to run eBay North America and is currently the COO of DoorDash. Over two years or so, the search team built an extremely credible effort, first releasing at the end of 2004. The team was fully organic, the first fully organic one at Microsoft, tasked to build cloud-based services at scale. They employed artificial intelligence and machine learning, and they created the kind of tools Google had developed to automate and manage tens of thousands of servers in multiple data centers. Many of these pioneering efforts were critical to Microsoft's cloud data centers over the next decade. While Christopher knew what he needed to do from a product and technology perspective, there are only two things holding the team back. First was resources. The team needed to spend a lot of money on capital expenses for servers and data sensors, as well as hiring more people. Second, the team needed to be given time to build a much more robust product and technology base before being pushed on revenue. They were far behind Google, and the complexities of overlaying a new advertising business did not seem prudent at the time. Google was doing about $6 billion of revenue directly on search that year, doubling year over year. It was already a juggernaut. In 2003, at the exec offsite, Christopher said it would take at least 18 months and $150 million to even enter the race with Google. And that it was critical we own our own search infrastructure. The first time Christopher and I met as part of Search and Windows, he told me he needed an additional $1 billion just in capital equipment and data centers for the next fiscal year. And revenue is not yet a priority. As I would soon learn, there was only so much patience above me. Combined, we called all of these Windows and Windows Live. And my official title was Senior Vice President, Windows and Windows Live, or WWL. I was already a senior vice president of office, another fact several people pointed to as evidence I was not up to the job. Cosdi continued to report to Kevin, though figuring out how to manage and organize it was all part of our ongoing efforts. That meant the broad view was that there was WWL and Cosdi, just as before there was Windows Client and Cosdi. To some, this was comforting. To others, they were waiting for the other shoe to drop. Let's put some numbers on all of this. There were approximately 3,500 full-time R&D employees in over 30 cities around the world for WWL, with about 1,000 software design engineers. By comparison, in Office, we worked using ratios that would have translated 1,000 to 1,000 software testers and 500 program managers. Compared to WWL, which had 750 testers, and 600 program managers. We had only a handful of managers to oversee multiple job functions in Office. Office 2007 had about 10. But this organization had more than 40. This is going to become incredibly important. COSDI was a bit larger with about 4,700 people in most every country Microsoft did business. But more than 1,500 were part of a major push to move all bug fixing and servicing of old releases of Windows to India. This was a radical, out of sight, out of mind move designed for cost effectiveness and something we didn't do in office. COSDI also had about 1,000 software engineers, but over 680 program managers, not all that much user interface, and about 1,000 software testers, about what one would expect. Cosdi had another 40 to 50 multidisciplinary managers. The number of vendors and contractors and open positions in WWL plus Cosdi product development made the whole thing approach 10,000 people. Yikes. 
The number of open positions was astonishing, thousands upon thousands. Not only could they never be filled, but the question was also how would they have helped to ship Vista? That couldn't be more different than what we did in office. Perhaps the most surprising data point was that almost one third of the team were managers and there were easily seven and often up to nine levels in the management hierarchy. Office was about 20% managers and rarely more than five levels of hierarchy domestically. Another measure of complexity in the system was the number of cost centers. In Microsoft Lingo, a cost center was a locus of financial controls, budgets, headcount monitoring, and so on. In practice, it was just a numeric field in SAP assigned to a person. In accounting and finance, the mere existence of a cost center was about $100,000 a year in operational overhead. In actual practice, every cost center was a huge headache. It was another place someone could come up with unique budgets, costs, and headcount. And when everything was considered for one product release, cost centers become overhead and bureaucracy. Windows had about 300 cost centers. By comparison, Office had about 30. Most of those were needed just because people were paid in local currency and a cost center could have only one currency. Mini Microsoft was looking more and more accurate. I was beginning to understand why I thought Mini was so off base when I compared what they said about Windows to Office. I completed an inventory of the projects and products that were underway and the resources assigned. Doing so felt a bit like an excavation. There wasn't a single place where the allocation was tracked. Finance knew how many dollars were budgeted by cost center, which were created to essentially streamline accounting or sometimes park open headcount. Projects underway were mostly tracked by multidisciplinary managers, MDM or PUM for product unit managers. The mapping of projects to products or a roadmap of the overall product release didn't exist. Finance had one view of open headcount, which had little correlation to the HR view that they had for recruiting. It was quite chaotic. When asked, managers had a solid idea of what they were doing, but that certainty did not roll up in either a strategic or fiscal sense. Compounding all of this were what I came to call headcount gymnastics. In order for one group to rely on a contribution from another, groups engaged in headcount bartering where heads were often loaned from one group to another as a way of creating accountability or a reliable contract for work. Absent headcount gymnastics, partnerships or collaboration between teams would be subject to the whims of PUMs, I think. I knew more about these gymnastics because more times than I could recall, Office was asked to support something new in Windows. And as part of the ask, they would provide headcount to get it done. It should be readily apparent as to why this was just not going to work. But when you think about it even for a bit, you realize just how absurd such a system is. It basically says that headcount is a tool for changing the priorities of a group. If you don't want to do something, then you don't want to. And the idea that if you had more headcount, then the thing you were asked to do is the thing you'd choose to do next is absurd. That's just on the face of it. There's a second order problem that headcount is not the same as a human being, a developer. It means the receiving group, the one that signed up to do something that it didn't want to do naturally, has now committed to do that very thing, but has no person to get the work done. If one continues to play out, 
Then you'll ask all sorts of other questions about what the schedule the work would get done on and what would happen if the work required changes to parts of the system that were not open to accepting changes for any of a variety of reasons. I could keep going, but it should be clear that operationally, this was just awful. Yet this is how almost everything worked. Let me indulge with a brief view of just how broken headcount was and how key this was to the whole mess I was now facing. There were some basics of all software projects. Among them, there is always more that the team wants to get done at any given time than is currently planned. And that adding more people once a project starts not only fails to help get more done, but likely will result in even less efficacy. There's a simple corollary to these rules, which is that most every project will end up scaling back work as it progresses just to finish on time. Said another way, projects don't get more done by the end than they said they would get done at the start. These bases go back to the mythical man month, one of the books issued to every new Microsoft developer going back to the earliest days. Therefore, the basic way we worked in Office, also for as long as I could remember, was that projects are planned to use the number of people currently in place at the start of the project or milestone, a subunit of a full release. If you don't have a human who can start the work, then whatever work was under consideration just doesn't get put on the project plan. Groups that were growing had open heads, but did not commit to work based on filling those heads. This made it very easy to know what a project was actually going to accomplish, because everything without a human assigned to it simply didn't get done. It will only get done the next time the team regroups, builds a new plan, and starts. In the case of Office, this took place every milestone. Projects had two or three milestones. And in the large, every whole release. A big part of how we ran in Office, then, was to forget, free everyone for ever thinking about headcount, ever. There was really no process to request headcount. We started a project with a known number of people. Every team could hire to people to replace attrition. And then every new project cycle, we assessed where we wanted to spend resources and increased, decreased, shut down, or created new efforts. Lather, rinse, repeat. We grew office from an organization of 350 to over 2,500 over a decade using this deliberate approach and never had thousands of open heads. Whenever we wanted to do something entirely new, the first step was to create the team by reallocating from our existing teams and do that in a significant enough way we could execute the whole project just as described above. This is how we created OneNote, SharePoint, InfoPath, and even the original Office product unit. By starting new efforts this way, we benefited from having experienced people volunteering for the new work who were committed to seeing it through and we never went through a period of time where one manager was always telling us they were still hiring people to do the work that they signed up to do. Some reading this description would be critical and point out how this might lack agility. They might suggest that this does not allow for flexibility or entrepreneurial thinking. What if a really great idea comes up or a competitor does something requiring a response, people would ask. Easy. Change the plan, allocate people to that new thing, and scale back or cancel something else? What if something is much more difficult than originally conceived and there's no way to get it done without more people? Easy. The team really messed up and either we immediately reallocate from elsewhere on the team or we just kill the feature. Why are all these so, quote, easy then? 
Because anything that relies on hiring, onboarding, training, and getting up to speed with people that don't currently exist has zero chance of getting the work done in conjunction with the rest of the product plan. If the business wants credit for the feature, then it is going to want to finish it with the release on some schedule, get incorporated into marketing, and launch at the same time. Otherwise, it probably won't exist for customers anyway. Were there complaints or grumbling? Oh, of course there were. And primarily along the lines of, we could do so much more, which was hardly specific to any single team. There's a, a certain psychology that takes hold while building out a product plan once execution starts. There are people who always think about just one more thing, or if only we could do this too. They fall into the trap of believing that it is always one thing that makes all the difference, that one extra thing. But it is never like that. On the outside chance it is, then it is far more likely that the whole of the plan was not that great in the first place. That one last thing is never considered in the context of the entire plan. Rather, it's just in that one moment. That's the whole flaw with planning by headcount, rather than holistic plans based on people that exist, ready to do the work. Ultimately, the key for how we worked in office was to remove headcount from all ongoing discussions. There was never a headcount or request approval process. Everyone was expected and did simply work with what they had. The deal from management at every level was that we too lived with this. We lived with the trade-offs the teams made along the way. Into that process of trade-offs, we baked in, in a culture of commitment to partnerships across the organization so we avoided one group prioritizing locally at the expense of other groups depending on previously committed work. Windows and Windows Live had almost the mirror image of this approach. Nearly every team ran with open heads that sometimes approached half their existing team size. It was not just that the team was always hiring, well, we were always hiring in office too, but the team was also in a constant state of having no idea what would get done and when. This lack of clarity extended to cross-team collaboration where headcount gymnastics were still not enough to make good on commitments. It was even a bit more insidious than I just described. As I began talking to teams around Windows and Windows Live about what they were planning on releasing, it was almost as though at every step I was running into a manager explaining that they have open heads. I would then ask if the feature was in the plan or not, and they would always say yes. I would follow up asking when it would be done. The answer was that it depends on when they could hire someone. Yet if someone left the team, in general, Microsoft Teams at this time were trading about six to 8% per year, more so during Longhorn as per the articles in the last section, then the next hires were simply replacements for who left. None of this reality slowed teams down from working at a constant state of signing up to do more, requesting and being granted more headcount and furthering the gap between what was sitting on a slide deck as the plan from a team and what code was going to be written and delivered, and when. Meetings with executives, aka me now, were viewed through the lens of expansive slide decks and accompanying headcount requests. This culture of headcount, as I called it, led to a world where people were seemingly rewarded for thinking up big ideas and making the case for more headcount to implement those ideas. I mean, it seems entrepreneurial, make the case for an idea and getting the resources to build it. Everyone can make a case for resources to get something done, but the question quickly becomes, what will actually get done and when? The process of circling back to those original proposals and checking in didn't really exist. 
other than meetings where projects went from expressing goals to expressing, quote, non-goals or what was no longer in scope. My inbox became filled with these decks offering to get me up to speed, or maybe I suspected to approve more headcount. The flip side of the culture of headcount is just how much bloat it causes. People do get hired onto these teams and the teams eventually grow, though never as much as open headcount. Also, more headcount keeps getting added to the teams as the team expands the charter to do more, at least on paper. The problem is that as soon as people show up, they are invariably added to the efforts that have already fallen behind and been not scaled back. This is a big part of how the original Outlook and NetDocs projects got to be so large, both of which reached a point where in order to ship, headcount was frozen and plans shifted quite a bit. In systems, this explained the growth of the project Cairo, which was ultimately canceled. The fiscal tracking systems in place only exacerbated the challenges this process created. The finance team trying to budget expenses gave up accounting by heads and simply tried to use actual dollars being spent on payroll and then literally guessed how many dollars might be spent next year. In other words, rather than asking executives how many people were on the team and when they would add more, finance maintained a dollar-based Excel model of expenses that had little correlation to all those cost centers and headcount slots. When I would ask managers about their headcount, they would point me to finance, who would tell me a dollar figure for the team's expenses, which was very hard to use to figure out what work was getting done. I did not intend to discuss headcount so deeply, but as I was listening to people tell me what was top of mind, it literally drove me bonkers. All I wanted to do was make a list of what was planned and who was working on it. But all I could get back were big plans and open headcount. As it would turn out, this was one of the most visible signs that things could be improved. Since I knew what to do, it gave me a bit of hope when I needed it the most. This might seem like talk of a headcount tracking maniac. I am not. In fact, I spent almost no time on this topic until I moved to Windows. As the next section will describe, we had a massive amount of remedial work to do on headcount management. I won't skip to the end, but a bit of foreshadowing is that we ultimately will get more done, ship on time, and with vastly more clarity, all while spending hundreds of millions of dollars less in direct cost by completely removing the whole concept of budgets and headcount gymnastics from the team. It was a huge headache. And had we failed to deliver good products, then the team would have been would have used that as a causal factor for failure. But it positioned us enormously well for the financial crisis that would seemingly appear out of nowhere halfway through our first product cycle as a team. That's the rant as to why the key lesson learned for me was that if you want to know what an organization is doing, then just count where the developers are and what they're working on. It really is literally that simple. Every financial control follows from the number of people actually working on the team. People love to say that building comes from small teams, and of course there's truth to that. Building at scale, however, requires sizable teams. The way to make a big team seem smallish is to keep the team focused on building and making the trade-offs inherent in building and not on budget and headcount gymnastics. In many ways, in a large company with many talented people and key product people in key roles, the unique and critical role of executive management is to decide and manage headcount so no one else ever needs to think about it and to drive the reallocations to get new things done 
or adding headcount to be filled without the expectation or requirement to deliver in the current project. The only way to do that is by knowing what the headcount is and by building that all the time. Returning to the inventory in the WWL organization, I counted 74 projects, each with about 13 developers on average for a total of 947 developers. There were only about 780 testers, which was far short of what Windows software generally required, I thought. Some of the shortcoming could be explained by Search, which was using more developer operations DevOps owing to the modern web architecture. But even Windows, which I would argue needed more testers, appeared short-staffed. There were 440 program managers, which was shy of the two developers for one PM ratio I might have expected. There were, however, over 40 people managing the small teams of a dozen developers. And most of those managers were serving as the lead program manager as well. I realize I'm falling into this trap of using Office as a baseline. But absent that, there wasn't a baseline, no plan or strategy from which to work. The online version includes a list of these projects that I discovered. The key learned lesson for me was that if you want to know what an organization is doing, then just count the developers, as we keep saying. The largest project teams, over 25 developers in this whole organization were, in order, search, the print server and drivers, the audio video platform, audio video codecs, the modern interface like pen and tablet, etc., and media rights management, DRM. While there is never a perfect correlation between the number of engineers and strategy, it was abundantly clear that either the resource allocation was off or at the very least was not aligned with the strategy. Looking to Windows for some examples, there were only 13 developers on DirectX, the core graphics engine for Vista, and there were only 25 developers on the rendering engine for Internet Explorer. And they were primarily fixing security bugs and compatibility bugs until the recent emergency plan to produce Internet Explorer 7 for Vista. That came about because there was a whole new non-HTML browser as part of Avalon, which was no longer in the Vista plan. Avalon, which would later be known as WPF for Windows Presentation Foundation, was a cornerstone of the old Longhorn plan and had 46 developers. While the specifics of what code was where might not have been totally clear from that inventory and certainly isn't clear today as I write this, the team was staffed inconsistently with respect to what seemed important. Windows Live was organized as a series of what seemed to be very small projects relative to the overall scale. On the one hand, it might be easy to look at the allocation and think about each as a cool startup inside a big company, competing with a startup from Silicon Valley in a similar space. With that view, the teams were staffed well. Except Microsoft was not able to release things in a small way and grow them like a startup. Everything needed to work worldwide, include adequate accessibility, work across browsers, not just in Firefox, or the new Chrome, and scale to all the users seeing the service on Microsoft.com, one of the busiest sites on the internet. Microsoft's online services were spread across 30 or so projects, each with less than 10 developers, at least for the front ends. The back ends were still in a separate organization. The differences in org structure and composition relative to Office had already begun to clarify some of the questions I was receiving. The online version includes some comparison statistics between Office, Windows and Windows Live, and COSDI. While those differences were stark to me, I quickly realized the obvious. 
Comparing what I was seeing in WWL to Office was not merely a non-starter. It was kind of insulting to my new team. No one in Windows wanted to hear anything relative to Office. Windows was not just different. It was vastly more complex, as I was repeatedly told. It was also more difficult. For more than a decade, I was used to being reminded directly or more subtly that Windows was technically deeper than Office. But now I was hearing that Windows was also a more complex management challenge. I wasn't convinced of this, but I was in active learning mode. I, I had no other baseline. I knew Office, I knew development tools, I worked across the company for Bill, I'd studied tons of other companies. As much as I knew I was biased in my thinking of Office, I also knew it was just software. It could not be that different, I thought. I did not really believe Windows was either more technically challenging or more difficult to manage, but I had to resist the temptation to debate those points. There were bigger issues. As much as I was focused on addressing Windows challenges, I realized the pain and anguish the Vista product cycle had brought to the broad employee base. To many product group employees, the stock price slump reflected the product execution, and Vista was taking the brunt of that blame. The challenges were much broader and deeper, however, and it would take time for employees and other executives to gain an appreciation for the difficulties the company was facing in products. There's a tendency to view morale and employee issues, or broadly culture, as distinct from company execution and performance. But at least at this moment, one thing was clear. The negative employee experiences were happening at the same time as customers were experiencing product issues, and strategically, the company seemed to be falling behind. It did not seem to me that more one could fix the culture unless we built better products, executed more effectively, and transformed the business to be more competitive. There is an online story about Google and how it compared to Microsoft called Google's World. A favorite internal conversation for me was on a Trent Griffin, T. Griffin email discussion group called Lightbulb. T. Griffin was a former technology investor, a Seattle area native, and early friends with the Gates family. He was one of the strongest strategic thinkers at Microsoft. Long a student and author of books on investing, Trend frequently posted news stories or questions about competitive markets, Microsoft's approaches, or other industry dynamics, and it generated a rich discussion among a core group of contributors and a large set of observers. Often the best discussions about Mini's posts or other press articles about Microsoft could be found on Lightbulb's distribution list or his external blog, 25IQ. The online version contains a sample of one of the posts that I happened to save from Lightbulb. After a couple of weeks of listening across these many forums, I started to gain a full appreciation of what was going on. It was deeply emotional for me, a mixture of opportunity as I said in many team meetings, to work on the other greatest business in the history of business. Okay, a, a not so subtle reference to office I could not resist. And also deep angst, which I shared in many meetings. So much of what I'm hearing are things that I've seen or heard and even experienced over the past 15 years, but from afar. And now these are my problems, and by that I mean our problems to solve together, I would say. I did have moments of sheer terror, for a while, perhaps a long while, I tended to avoid people outside of the Windows team, especially my dear friends in office, because they all wanted to know, are things really that bad? I, I simply could not afford to be candid, 
even going to yoga class or out to dinner resulted in sightings I wanted to avoid. Seattle was a one-company town back then. Fifteen years earlier, when Mike Maples shared his description of two gardens, the windows and office gardens, I understood it intellectually from the experiences I had. Now I was experience, experiencing the difference emotionally. Even to this day, I struggle to articulate just how different the cultures were. While both still achieved spectacular success, somehow this came about all under one roof in a remarkable case of divergent evolution. While I definitely experienced lonely moments in office, I was never as lonely as the first six months of working on Windows. I had to think. I had to write to think. But I was not ready to write in public. <laughs>